Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 95. Here we are. It's 95. 95. <laughs> Who would have thought it, Jen? Mm, almost everybody that listens to this podcast. <laughs> They're like, those girls just won't stop. No. <laughs> no, I ran into my friend Sharon the other day in the Target parking lot because uh-huh. that's as moms do. <laughs> and she was like, wow, you guys are like almost to 100. You're still doing it. <laughs> You sure are, Sharon. <laughs> like, is it cool? <laughs> yeah. No, she's awesome. I love her. She's like, how sad. <laughs> it was the funniest mom uh, pandemic parking lot uh, conversation ever because after that, she was like, we were talking about how we've both gotten, you know, the first vaccine or whatever. Yeah. And she was like, don't you just like want to party? <laughs> like, yeah, like I just want to dance. <laughs> she was like, me too. <laughs> and she's like, what kind of trouble can we get into? <laughs> so, and other things were said that I won't get into, but we came but, up with some devious ways to get into some trouble. Oh man, Safely. I want to get in I want to get into some trouble. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I know I it's know. so funny cuz like it's not like before the pandemic we were out like causing a ruckus. I know. Like, going we were out and dancing. Already in bed by eight o'clock. But uh, now I'm ready. I'm gonna start I'm gonna start staying up just like maybe ten minutes later every mm-hmm. night so that I can get up to like ten. Yeah. So then we can go out for a nice dinner and a couple drinks after. I'm gonna eat dinner at seven thirty. <laughs> Whoa. Uh-huh. What are you, European? Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> I might have to take a siesta. <laughs> I'm going to have to take a nap before I can eat dinner at 7.30. Let's cause some trouble. Let's cause some trouble with some quick haze. Let's do it. All right. I'm going first this week. So we're recording. It is now uh, – we we usually record on Fridays, just so you know. And so it's April 2nd. So we totally missed April Fool's Day, but – I did find this article written by uh, Alyssa Bain. Uh, It's for HITC.com. Oh, sure. Um, I don't know what (laughs) I don't know what this is, but it's uh, she wrote this article, a listicle, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, That was uh, seven April Fool's Day pranks for boyfriends. Okay, funny (laughs) jokes to play on your partner, and I just really wanted to share them with you because. They're not that funny. Sorry, uh-huh. Alyssa Bain. You know, I'm sure she doesn't even care. She's like, whatever. It's a job. She's I like, I got I paid $20 for something. this and I did it in yeah. five minutes. Um, <laughs> but do you ever play April Fool's jokes on Ben? No. No? You're just not into not into the April Fool's or not into pranks? Ne- yeah, both. Both. Okay. Like, I'm not against, like, a fun, like, you know, good-hearted prank. Right. But it's just not something that we have ever done. Yeah. I don't Because you trust each other and you don't want to break that trust. I get it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I grew up in a prank house and yeah. I trust no one. Right. 
No It all makes sense now, Jen. Yes. All my family did was prank each other and be, and then, um, and then, you know, my husband, uh, loves to prank and his dad loves to prank. And that's why, um, I, um, really don't trust anyone (laughs) and have never loved fully you know yeah I mean why you're they're gonna even rip off their mask and become someone else totally even my so my 10 year old son this was a couple years ago he pulled this prank on me and I have to tell you it was like uh, like I'm just shocked that he pulled this off but I was, we went to a beach house with some friends. It was like for spring break. And when we got there, we were the first family there. And I looked in the fridge and I was like, ew, somebody left like a jar of mayonnaise in here. Like stranger mayonnaise is what I was referring to this jar all Uh week long. I called it stranger mayonnaise. And so I should have just threw it away, but for some reason I didn't want to touch it. And so I just left it in the fridge. And then um, one morning... I came down on the trip. I came downstairs and um, we're all talking. Then all of a sudden my son goes into the fridge, pulls out the stranger mayonnaise, opens the jar, (laughs) gets a spoon and starts shoveling it into his mouth. And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's stranger mayonnaise. Stop, stop, it's stranger mayonnaise. And like... And then Zach is sitting there going, come on, it's fine. It's spring break. Just let him do what he wants. Like, just let him have it. And I was like, it's stranger mayonnaise. Like, I don't know how long that's been sitting. I was freaking, like, hyperventilating, freaking out because it's yeah. so disgusting to me. And the fact that, like, Zach was then just telling like, me great. to calm, calm down, down. Yeah. and telling Sully to eat the mayonnaise, I freaked the fuck out. But so it turned out that my son somehow managed to get a jar of mayonnaise back in Atlanta where we live, empty it out, get an insane amount of vanilla pudding and (laughs) fill the jar, (laughs) transport the pudding in the mayonnaise jar all the way from Atlanta to Ocean Isle, somehow ran up to the fridge before I could get to it and put this jar of mayonnaise in there before (laughs) I could see it. It was like the most like long... Term. It was a long con. Same. Long con is what I'm saying. But then the funniest thing ever was that our friend Adam, um, my friend Jill's husband, he usually sleeps later than the rest of us because he's low lucky. And um, <laughs> it's, it's a gift that he has. And so he w- was sleeping. So we were like, let's prank Adam when he wakes up. Let's do this again to Adam. And so then Adam gets up and comes and sits down and starts eating breakfast. And then Sully just like pulls up a chair next to him gets out the jar of mayonnaise, starts eating it. And then Adam just looks over at him, kind of shrugs his shoulders and was like, whatever. <laughs> Not my kid. So he was like, whatever, dude. Spring break, eat whatever you want, right? <laughs> it's so funny. So anyways... That's why I don't even trust my own child. Yeah, um, that's I have to say. I think it, I that is a really great prank. <laughs> and I have, you know, I have a I have a lot of respect for Sully. I've I'll share Palma. the picture of him eating the jar of mayonnaise on the episode pictures when we put this out. Oh, it's so uh, but good. it's pretty gross. Um so her list of things that it's a very short list, um, but of things that you should do to prank your lover. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> pretend you lost something sentimental. That's not funny, dude. No. That's not a good prank. That's like not- like no. 
No. And then number two, fake a tattoo. Okay. Like, you know, like yeah. Debbie Gibson, draw a face onto your kneecap <laughs> through a ripped jean. <laughs> Tell oh. your husband you've gone full out Debbied. Oh, Jen. Um, I'm the only one who's going to get that. <laughs> what? Come on. Dumb Love listeners definitely listen to Debbie Gibson, right? Yeah, that's true. That's probably true. Sorry right. for our younger We have lessons. a demographic. Google it. And it's... Uh, it's <laughs> Tiffany Debbie. <laughs> um, number three, move his car. It says, this is a funny one, but it only works if you live somewhere where you park your car on the street. <laughs> oh, man. One time my roommate, uh, my roommate Bethany, her when we lived in Chicago, her car got stolen and she went to the police and she was like, my car was stolen. And they were like, are you sure you didn't just park it somewhere? Oh my god! And she was like, "No, I'm positive. I've spent three hours walking up and down the streets, like trying to find my car." And then they finally they found her car. Some kid had taken it and taken it for a joyride. And I'm sure then then she felt relief because she was validated. Yeah, but she she was like, they they found the car and they had like everything. I think it was like just kind of like gross. Like nothing, nothing was really wrong except they had thrown one of her favorite flip flops. It was like, a, <gasps> like reefs, you know, like something out the window. So she, it was like, they just one of my flip flops, like just one. Oh, <laughs> just that's so the worst. Yeah. Oh, I hate that when like your car gets broken into and you're like, Come on, like, what are you going to do with my makeup, dude? Right? <laughs> I know. Um, so number four uh-huh. is uh, replace Oreo cream with toothpaste. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just sounds like a mint cookie. Yeah, we have and some mint Oreos it. right now, and they're yeah. real good. I would, I would eat that. Uh, number five, change his ringtone. <laughs> oh, you're so bad. <laughs> I'm being such a bitch to this poor woman that wrote this article. Okay, but I um I if my ringtone changed, I would just be like, mm, whoops. I wouldn't notice back. because nobody ever calls me. <laughs> True. Same. Uh number six, make up a fake news story. I mean, what? That, that just sounds seems like, a, like lot a lot of work. Of work. Yeah. <laughs> it says you could perform. This is so bad. It says you could pretend that your boyfriend's favorite actor has died or a band that he loves are breaking up. The possibilities are endless with this one. It's so That's funny. That's so fucked up. <laughs> it's so funny to think that somebody you love died. I know. And then fools. Number seven says create a shortcut on his phone. Um, I guess it says go into his iPhone settings and create a shortcut by going to settings, then general, then keyboard and text replacement, and then choose a phrase that he uses really often. And then when he's typing on the phone, um, it'll add a random word or sentence whenever he's trying to type. I have seen that done very fun, very funnily. Funnily? No. Funnily? I okay. <laughs> I think like, that one funny. can be funny. Okay, I think well, that one could be funny. Could I can't be. think of a great example, but I think that's the only one where I'm like, okay, that's like lighthearted enough. Yeah, but like I've seen where people go into their parents, and instead of like if their parents write "I love you" a lot, it, they write something. I don't. I can't even think of it a good example, but I can see where that one could be funny, like and not DTF. Hurtful. Yeah? Question mark. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, no, that could, yeah, I could see that. But um, that was so. Luckily, that was the funniest one because that was the last one on her <laughs> list of pranks. I, I feel so. like I'm like there's a lot more material out there. Yeah. So if you guys like pranking people and you have some good ones, send us your best pranks. So we may or may pranks. not do them on. um all right well um i always love a good listicle to make fun of yeah me too um (laughs) all right so my quickie comes from the new york times an article by neil vigor um okay so a man in las cruces new mexico he's not named in this article he ran into his local albert albertson's grocery store to pick up just a few items it was a hot day, so he left the windows down on the Buick he was driving, and it was actually a friend's car that he had borrowed. And when he came out of the store 10 minutes later, he didn't notice anything wrong, but it was only when he started to drive away that he realized that there was a swarm of 15,000 bees in his back seat. Oh, my God. Uh- can you imagine just be like getting in your car, like run away, and all of a sudden it's like, and you oh turn God. around, and a fucking swarm of bees is in your back seat? No, I would crash my car into the wall just to get out of the car. I would find like a lake and be like, see ya. Yeah, that's <laughs> like he jumped out of the car, stopped, jumped out of the car, and not knowing what <gasps> else to do, he calls nine one one. So when the fire department got this strange call. They knew what to do. They called an off-duty firefighter and paramedic named Jesse Johnson because Jesse is an amateur beekeeper and a 10-year veteran of the fire department. And he had just finished his family barbecue and he learned about these bees. And so he immediately sprung into action because his goal was to rescue the bees. Because Jesse says, I'll do anything to keep people from killing bees. Jesse saved the bees. Jesse saved the bees. So he put on his beekeeper's gear and he went to go collect the bees and relocate them to his own bee colony. So apparently it's like common in the spring for colonies of bees to split because like a swarm will follow, like there'll be a new queen and they'll follow the queen to another location. And um, Jesse said that this swarm was probably looking for a new home and just went into the backseat as like a place to take shelter. Mm-hmm. And he said that luckily when bees are swarming, they're pretty docile. They don't have a home to protect for the moment. So it's actually much more intimidating than it is dangerous. Although the man who found the bees in the car was like, yeah, I don't care if you're telling me this is not dangerous. He was like, I'm just worried that this is my friend's car that now has 15,000 bees in it. <laughs> oh my God. So Jesse brought an empty hive box and he treated it with lemongrass oil because apparently that mimics the scent of the queen and he collected all 15,000 bees. Oh my God. He said it would have been quicker, but he wanted to stay to make sure he got all of them. He said, the meat and potatoes was real quick. I didn't want to leave him with a thousand bees still in his car looking for their queen. <laughs> Imagine like just like, oh, well, we got 14,000 of them, but you still have a thousand bees in your car. <laughs> oh, my God. How did they get there? They just were like, I guess, swarming and the window was open. And they just, they oh just my hopped in. God, I didn't even know that could happen. Yeah, he said it's pretty common and he said it probably came from like maybe some it was like in the bees had made a hive in someone's carport and they had like destroyed it or something so they're like swarming and looking for a new home 
Holy shit. 15,000? 15,000 bees. That's a new thing. Okay, like, you know, we talked about this on the podcast before. Like, we never worried about falling trees until we lived in Georgia. And now we're terrified of trees falling. Now that's going to be, like, I never knew that bees can just end up in your car like that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's just a New Mexico thing. I don't know. We have bees here, too. But, uh like apparently only two people got stung. Like only he said one wow. of the firefighters got stung on his lip. He was like, "We all made fun of him about it in the morning." <laughs> but then then like a store worker got stung, but the guy in the car didn't get stung at all cuz they're pretty like they're not trying to sting people when they're swarming, I guess. So, whoa. Anyway, I know this isn't exactly a dumb love story, but it just was like, "Holy shit, 15,000 bees." And I decided that it was about Jesse's Love for, for the bees. bees. For the bees. Okay, I'll take it. I will he was accept. like, don't kill the bees. I got to protect them. I'll accept that. And now they live at his house. <laughs> they do? <laughs> yeah, he took them to, he, he keeps bees. And oh. so he just brought them to his own bee colony. Good for Jesse. Good for Jesse. And the bees. Yep, good for Jesse and the bees. Too bad for that guy who borrowed his friend's car. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's my quickie. Good one. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for our true crime story of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Are you? Okay. Um, so this story came from um, uh, an article for CBS News written by Julie Knight Brown, Murderpedia, Ooh. Wikipedia. What? And also an episode of Snapped. <gasps> Old school. Kicking Going it. Back to basics. Old school. Yeah. So on July 12, 2009, in Rybrook, New York, at a hotel, Narcy Novak and her 33-year-old daughter, May, were downstairs eating breakfast at, at the hotel. They had woken up early because they were planning this big convention. They worked for this company that they owned, actually. Um, so... Narcy's husband, Ben Novak, owned, it was like a family business called Convention Concepts Unlimited, where they would go to different, you know, all the big hotel conventions, they would plan them. So they had a a convention planning company, Convention Concepts Unlimited. Mm -hmm. Get it? Uh Yeah, Unlimited Concepts. So they they were in the middle of a big convention and they had been up all night working on it. And so Ben was actually sleeping in because he had been up all night long while Narcy and May were downstairs eating. Narcy then went back up to the room while her daughter stayed down to finish eating. When all of a sudden the hotel manager calls May and asks her to come up to her parents' suite. And so when she goes up there to see what's going on, all of a sudden she sees paramedics rushing into their room. And she tried to rush into their room, but the hotel manager stopped her before she could. And they told her that they were very sorry, but her stepfather, Ben Novak, had been killed. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Narcy was the one that found them. 
Narcy, who's her full name is Narcissa Valiz, and so for short, she went by Narcy, was born in Ecuador in 1956. She was the youngest in a family of nine children, and her parents were farmers. They had a, a nice life in Ecuador, um, but she always knew that she wanted more. And as Snap said, she wanted to live a glamorous life. <laughs> she don't need man's touches. Sheena E, remember? <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's, okay. <laughs> Dumb listeners, do you know Debbie, Tiffany, Sheena E? If you don't, I'm very disappointed. Okay. So she wanted to live a more glamorous life. So she started a relationship with a local businessman who lived in her town who traveled to the U.S. regularly she saw that that was a good way for her to be able to travel more was to shack up with this guy, you know, and you know how I always like to say, you know, snapped always likes to paint these pictures of like gold digger. Yeah. And it's like, maybe she just like met a guy and they traveled together. Right. Could be. And so they eventually got married and they moved to the United States together. That's when she gave birth to her daughter, May. When Narcy was 22 years old, her and her husband divorced shortly after she, they had the baby. So she was dating a lot after the divorce. She was very beautiful and she was young and she dated all these wealthy men that would take her on fancy trips. Mm-hmm. And so, but they did say that, you know, she would leave her daughter for sometimes months at a time when she would be away with these men. Okay. So she didn't really have the best relationship with her daughter. Yeah. In the early 1980s, though, Marcy decided that she wanted to settle down and finally be a better mother. So she took her daughter, May, to Miami, Florida, and that's where they decided to start a new life. And she needed to be able to provide for her daughter, so she took up exotic dancing, the best way for her to be able to provide for them. And so it was while she was dancing that she met 27-year-old Ben Novak. So Ben was famous in Miami because he was son of Miami's most wealthy couples. His father, Ben Novak Sr., owned Miami's famous Fountain Blue Hotel. I don't Have you ever heard of it? Nope. But it's famous. It's famous. I mean, I uh, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> and so um, Debbie Gibson, she <laughs> Tiffany, okay. that hotel. So Fountain Blue Hotel. Yes. So her mother, um, Ben's mother, Bernice, she was a socialite in Miami. She was an ex model, and now she was now well known around town for being the face of the Fountain Blue Hotel. And the Fountain Blue was where all of the rich and glamorous and famous people hung out like JFK, Marilyn Mm -hmm. Monroe, Frank Sinatra, you know, all these guys. (laughs) Uh, And so even though his parents were very wealthy, Ben didn't exactly have the easiest childhood while his parents were busy leading the glamorous life. Ben was kind of left by himself, you know, a lot when he was little and he kind of grew up in the hotel room. They said that he was basically raised by the security guards. And so He was kind of a lonely kid, and he liked to kind of escape by reading comic books. So he was really big into comic books and was was kind of a nerdy guy. But he was very smart and had a great mind for business. So at the age of 22, which is so young, you know, in 1978, Ben actually started his own company, and that's where he started the Convention Concepts Unlimited, uh, specializing in throwing hotel conventions. So he was very successful in being the comic 
book nerd that he was, he loved to purchase memorabilia, especially Batman memorabilia. And he even owned a Batmobile. Oh, like really? one of the originals from the television show. Uh-huh. Okay. And so in 1983, when he met Narcy, they became a couple. And Ben's parents did not like her. They had the whole thing where they wanted him to marry a nice Jewish girl, you know? Right. And, and, um, but then they didn't like the fact that A, she was a, a stripper, and B, that she was not Jewish, but she was Ecuadorian. And so she wasn't what they wanted for their right. son. And so, but despite his parents disapproving, he married Narcy anyway in 1991. And then they moved to Seven Isles, which is a, like um, a very fancy community, uh, waterfront community in Fort Lauderdale into this mansion. And May, Narcy's daughter, actually loved Ben. So from the age of eight is when she met him. And so she kind of grew up with him from like the age of eight on to her adulthood. And they actually became very good friends because they kind of related to the fact that they were kind of both left to their own devices when they were children. Yeah. And, you know, weren't really, were kind of abandoned by their parents. But Narcy wasn't crazy about the fact that they got along so well, which is kind of fucked up. So their relationship ended up souring about the time that May was a teenager. They fought all the time. So Ben was also, according to Snapped, he was a sex addict and he would cheat on Narcy with strippers and prostitutes. Uh-huh. Um, and they would fight a lot. I would, fi- I would yeah. fight over that. <laughs> yeah, okay. That would make me a uh, little mad. Yeah, I'd fight. So they would fight a lot. And then... um, And And she was a jealous woman. She was a wild, jealous, (laughs) rageful woman. He was just a man with needs. He just had had an addiction. And so (laughs) they fought so much and kind of had such a kind of wild relationship that one day in 2002, the next door neighbors came over and they found Ben and he was handcuffed to a chair. And he had been beaten up. When they asked him what happened, Ben told them that Narcy had handcuffed him, had people beat him up, and then she disappeared, and that he was sitting like that for over 24 hours. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And so when the police tracked Narcy down, she was like, what? That was just a game that we were playing. Like a sex game is what Uh she said. And then Ben immediately dropped the charges. So the police were like, "Um, okay, whatever. (laughs) All right. Do your thing. So the police just like ignored him and was like, whatever. And so they stayed together, even though they fought constantly for the next seven years after that. They just stayed together for a long, long time. Then on April 5th, 2009, Ben went over to visit his mother at her house and at the time she was 87 years old and when he went to find her he found his mother laying in the laundry room and she was dead laying in a pool of blood and it looked as though she had had taken a bad fall and then kept trying to get back up and falling again breaking bones and fracturing her skull so that's awful it was ruled as an accident And then just days later, she was cremated and they scattered her ashes on the lawn of the Fountain Blue Hotel. And then only three months after that, Ben would be dead too. So when Ben was found in that hotel room, um, he had been hogtied, gagged, and beaten to death. And his eyes were actually slit open. (gasps) I know. It's just like brutal. Brutal. 
I didn't write this. I mean, I wrote the story, <laughs> but I didn't make up the story. Completely brutal. And so when the police questioned Narcy, she told them that he was asleep when she left to have breakfast with her daughter. Then only 30 minutes later, when she came back from breakfast, she said she walked into the room, tripped over his body, and then ran for help. And when they asked her who would want to kill Ben, she suggested that maybe it was a robbery because they had collected a bunch of cash from the convention. Mm-hmm. Or she said, or maybe it could be this other memorabilia collector that Ben had some kind of a dispute with or they that were falling out with. They had a dispute over a comic book, apparently. But the police were like, this was such a horrific beating. There's no way this was over a comic book. Right. And there's no way that this was just a robbery because it was very personal. Whoever did this obviously wanted him to suffer. And so the police were already suspecting Narcy because they just didn't think that she was acting right, given the circumstances. And even May, her own daughter, suspected her mother right away. She said that her mother was acting very strange and that her story just kept changing, like she could not keep her story straight. And when they brought both May and Narcy in for questioning separately, May told them, told the police, I think my mother is crazy and she had something to do with this. Oh, really? Like right away. Mm-hmm. And when they questioned Narcy, Jen, I think she might have had something to do with it too. You know, <laughs> I kind of do too. And so when they questioned Narcy, she couldn't give great answers about anything. And she kept saying that, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. She just couldn't remember anything. And so they were also able to see from the hotel's records that only Narcy's key card had opened the door. So they were like, nobody else had opened this door besides your, your key card. And then Narcy was like, oh, I, yeah, I think I left it open when I left for breakfast. I think I left it open. Mm-hmm. Why? Anyway, so and then one guest at the hotel told the police that they saw two men go into Narcy and Ben's room. And then they said that they saw a lady come out of that room and the lady opened the door for these two men. And they said that that woman was Narcy. Yeah. And when Narcy, when they asked Narcy about it, all she had to say for it was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. But after a long, long, long interrogation, they eventually just had to let her go. And so when both May and Narcy got back to the hotel, because they, so they're at a hotel in New York, but they live in Miami. So they're at the hotel in New York and May told her mother, I know that you did this and I'm not going to let you get away with this. Yeah. And so May then set out to prove that her mother had killed Ben. So then they went back to Miami and on July 15th, just three days after the murder, May calls the police and told them that her mother had just tried to attack her with a crowbar. Oh my God. Yeah. So apparently May had gone to Narcy and Ben's Seven Isles home mm-hmm. and was looking for evidence. She said she was looking for like date books, planners, diaries, and she didn't really know exactly what she was looking for. But when she was looking for stuff, her mother came in and started screaming at her and calling her a traitor. And she swung the crowbar at her. And May said that she was able to block it with her arm and then ran out of the house. But when the police came and confronted Narcy, Narcy told them that she had the crowbar, but that it was in self-defense because she said that May had threatened to kill her and set her on fire, is what she said. 
Uh-huh. And then the police, like, once again, were just like, you guys are nuts. Right. <laughs> How much you guys work this um, out amongst yourselves? Yeah, like, you guys are crazy. Good luck. So they just let the, left them. And so then on July 17th, Miami Springs police officers receive an anonymous letter claiming that Narcy paid men to kill Ben and had used her own brother, Cristobal Feliz, as the middleman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, they said that he had found the killers and hired them. And so the police then, of course, found he was living in Pennsylvania at the time, uh, Cristobal, and um, they interrogated him. And he, of course, denied having anything to do with it. Right. And so um, in the meantime, on August 17th, May went and filed a motion with the court asking that they bar Narcy from receiving any of Ben's estate until the case was solved. May then contacted the Rybrook police in New York and told them that Ben had been dating a porn star named Rebecca Bliss since 2008. So, and this was important information because um, apparently Ben had met Rebecca online and he had, um, and they had started an affair and they become so serious to that. Ben was actually putting her up in a condo was like paying for her uh-huh. to live in a condo. So I guess May was a super detective and found out all of this and talked to Rebecca. And Rebecca said that he had been talking about divorcing Narcy and marrying Rebecca right before he had been murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Because had they divorced, she would have only gotten $65,000 due to the prenup that they had. But if he died while they were married, she would have received millions. And then the police get a call from Cristobal and he tells the police that May had planned Ben's murder and was framing him and Narcy so that she could inherit Ben's estate. He even tells the police that she hired a Nicaraguan immigrant named Alejandro Garcia. And so the police are like, who is Alejandro Garcia? So then they go and track him down. And he was fortunately already in jail. He had been arrested on unrelated charges. So they had him in custody in New York. But when the police questioned him, Alejandro Garcia said that, no, May didn't hire me to kill Ben Novak, Cristobal did. And he gave him $20,000 to kill him. He actually told them he also um, hired him to kill Bernice Novak just three months earlier. Yeah. So he admitted that he went into her home and killed her by hitting her in the face with a monkey wrench. So awful. That's so awful. I know. And then he also told the police that the person that ordered the murder of both of these people, you know, that, you know, Cristobal was the middleman, but it was Narcy that ordered them. So Cristobal is obviously an idiot (laughs) for trying to spin this over on May and then providing them with the name of the Right, that's what I'm going to say. Like, he provided the name. I know. And so when the police looked at the the autopsy of Ben's mother, Bernice, they saw that the story matched with the evidence that they had, you know, um, the story that he was telling them. So the reason that Bernice was murdered was because they needed her to be dead because according according to Ben's will his money would have been left to his mother first 
and then a small percentage to Narsi. Yeah. Okay. But so, but if Bernice was deceased, then it would all go to Narsi. And so on July 8th, 2010, Cristobal Belize was arrested. And at that same morning, Narsi Novak was also arrested for the murder of both Bernice and Ben Novak. And so on April 23rd, 2012, Narcy and her brother both went to trial in New York and they were charged with 13 different counts in arranging the murder of both Bernice and Ben. And because the murder took place in New York, one murder took place in New York and one murder took place in Florida, this became a federal case. So they, they actually went to federal court. Okay. The prosecution obviously presented the case that her motivation for the murder was because Ben was her meal ticket and she was in danger of losing it because he was planning to divorce her. And the defense tried to say the only thing that they really had to go on is they just tried to say that it wasn't Narcy that ordered the murders, but it was her daughter, May. Right. That did it. And so they ha- actually had Rebecca Bliss, Ben's girlfriend, testify. And she stated that, yes, the plan was that he was going to divorce Narcy. And he- she also testified that Narcy had called her and threatened her and said, if she can't have him, no one will. That was pretty damning. Yeah. And then when they brought Alejandro Garcia to the stand, he testified that Cristobal and Narcy had both paid him to kill both Bernice and Ben. He also testified that the other person that they had paid to kill Ben was a man named Joel Gonzalez because there were two men in the New York hotel. And he said that Cristobal had arranged for them to travel together to New York to carry out the murder. Now, Joel Gonzalez, who also was already in jail for another crime, you know, criminals, they're usually in jail. Right. (laughs) And so he took this stand and he corroborated Alejandro's testimony. And the hotel video from the Rybrook Hotel shows these two men walking together into the hotel and up to the room. And Joel Gonzalez testified that Narcy opened the door for them and then pointed to where her husband was sleeping. And then he proceeded to beat him with a pair of heavy dumbbells. I know. And he actually said that he started to chicken out. He was like, I can't do this. Because he had never murdered a person before. And then he said that when he tried to leave, Narcy blocked the door and told him, get back in there and finish the job. And not only that, but that she handed him a pillow to muffle Ben's screams. And then he said that she ordered them to slice his eyeballs as a payback for cheating on her. Now, this all sounds horrific. And this is probably true. Yeah. But also, these are criminals that... And trust me, I think Narcy a thousand million bajillion percent did it. But I'm just saying these little details about her blocking the door and these other little things, like, maybe... Right. You know what I mean? right, right. So right. when Cristobal took the stand, he tried telling the court that he like gave this whole story about how May had once kidnapped him and held him hostage for 18 days. And the jury was basically like, yeah, okay. Right. Like, you know, like that's where <laughs> yeah. they lost the whole fucking thing was when he got up there and started making these wild lies. They actually said that you could see the jury roll their eyes when he was telling these stories. And (laughs) his testimony was that bad that Narcy didn't even take the stand. She was just like, fucking never mind. (laughs) Like, 
after he got up there and started telling all these lies that made no sense at yeah. all. She just was like, whatever. And so Narcy even decided that she didn't want to be in the courtroom when the verdict was read. So she just, when they read the verdict, she just sat in a cell by herself. But she was found guilty of 12 out of 13 counts. Um, Cristobal was also found guilty on several counts. It doesn't say how many. But either way, on December 17th, 2012, they were both sentenced to life in prison. And here's the thing. May Abad, her daughter, Uh and her sons are set to inherit Ben's estate of $4.2 million. Wow. Yeah. Not. I don't think that May did that on purpose. Like, right. I'm, I'm not saying that. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. funny that they were trying to paint the picture that she did it for the money. And um, at the end of it, she does get it. Yeah. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I can think of some stuff to do with that. Me too. That's a crazy story and really brutal. I know. Sorry. They should have just gotten a divorce a long time ago. Yeah. A long- but she, of course, I'm sure she wanted... The money. That's yeah. why she probably stuck around. It's because she wanted to leave the glamorous life she don't need. Sometimes, you know what? She <laughs> Snapped is right about these ladies. Sometimes, Sometimes they, they are. are. You know? <laughs> Sometimes they are money grubbing, jealous digger. bitches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a love story? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I have two beautiful love stories today. One longer and then one that I found while I was looking at the first one. And um, they're both about families, beautiful families, and the love of family. Okay. um, Okay, so I got my information from lovewhatmatters.com by Emily Ritchie, today.com by Rachel Paula Abramson, Fox 6 by Stephanie Weaver, twopeople.com articles by Joelle Goldstein and Katie Campioni and the Instagram account Second Chance 7. Okay. Okay. So Pam and Gary Willis met when she was just 15 and he was 18. They started dating, they fell in love, and they got married just two years later, which is very young, but also they grew up in the Church of Latter-day Saints. They were Mormons, so marrying young was not out of the ordinary among their peers. And Pam says that she always knew that she wanted to be a mother. She says that when she and Gary were dating, they would joke that they were going to have 10 kids. And so right after they got married, they started having – they started their family. Gary joined the Navy. And by the time Pam turned 23, six years after they got married, they had three kids. While she was having these three kids, Pam had been going to college as well to become a nurse – and she, having three little kids, she managed to finish her undergrad degree. And because Gary was in the Navy, they ended up moving around quite a bit. They moved from Hawaii to California to Texas and then settled in California. And during that time that they were moving, they managed to have two more children and Pam became an RN. So if it sounds hectic, it was. Yeah. But Pam describes herself as a person who cannot sit still. She is a doer. She loves having a full house and a busy job. It was just like in her nature. And while Gary is the more laid back of the two and kind of balances the pair, like he's also all on board. He wanted a big family. He loved this like kind of chaos in their house. And they were just like a good team. 
And so as their children got older, Pam decided that she wanted to take on a new endeavor. She had worked as a labor and delivery nurse for 16 years and had become very interested in the legal aspects of the medical field. So when their youngest was in kindergarten, which was also the same week that their oldest child of now they have five kids started college, Pam started law school. And so while she was in school raising five children, she was still working as a part-time labor and delivery nurse to help the family make ends meet. And their whole family like supported her through law school. And around this time, Gary also started a new career. He retired from the Navy and joined the post office as a postal inspector. And as more of their children started going off to college and getting married, most couples would take this time to focus on themselves, right? They started having kids really early, so maybe just to actually live like a free life. But Pam and Gary felt they had this big house, they had love, they had energy, they had resources now. And so even though they still had three teenagers at home, they had a 13, a 16, and an 18-year-old, they decided to become foster parents. Because Pam's family had adopted. And so she had adoptive siblings. Her best friend was adopted. So they just felt very passionate about becoming foster parents. And so for five and a half years, they fostered babies and toddlers, usually siblings of two or three at a time. And most stayed with them for like a little over a year before they were either reunited with their parents or adopted by a family member. And Pam... And Gary found this like it's heartbreaking. You know, they they would love these kids as if they were their own and then they would leave to go. But they knew that that is what the system was like. They were there to love these kids for the time that they needed it. They have one set of three siblings who were actually adopted by close friends of theirs who had been trying to become parents for years. And and so they were like they were happy they were able to stay in these kids lives. And they would take breaks every so often for like a month or so, but then they would just be ready to fill their house with more children. And their biological children were all on board with the fostering and having kids in their house and they would help out. But in 2018, when their youngest was ready to graduate from college, they had just one foster baby in in their home. And they were like, this was the quietest their house had been since they were, you know, since they had gotten married. And he had been with them since he was just three days old. And they had talked about, you know, they were about to become empty nesters and whether they thought they should just enjoy their time alone and enjoy being grandparents. Because at 48 and 51 years old now, they were grandparents to seven beautiful grandbabies. But they thought about all the children they had fostered, about all the need there was still for people, for kids out there. And they knew that for as long as they could, they were going to be foster parents. And this is all, of course, while Pam is a lawyer and Gary is coming up on 30 years as a postal inspector. So in January 2019, Pam was scrolling her Facebook feed when she saw a news story that made her stop in her tracks. So the headline read, Seven Siblings in Need of Forever Home. And this was a CBS 8 News article, and it had been making the rounds on social media. Some reporter had found these seven children who were ranging in ages from 2 to 13 who were asking for a family to adopt them. And these kids were in – I know. They were in foster care, and – they were in foster care because their parents – this is very the very sad part – their parents had all been in a car accident, and the, the family, the kids were in the car when it happened, and both of the parents had died. Oh, my God. None of the children had been in car seats, 
and they <gasps> were all thrown from the car. The older two, 13-year-old Adelino and 11-year-old Ruby, broke bones and suffered some pretty serious injuries, but the younger five were hurt but not seriously harmed. So there were no adults in their family who were able to care for the siblings. They had a half-sister who was like in her 20s and was pregnant at the time this happened, so she couldn't take the seven kids. So all of these seven traumatized kids ended up in a foster home, luckily all together. So... The story read, what these children deserve now is a forever family, and that Ruby is quoted in the article, she's the 11-year-old, is like, I want a family that's fun, joyful, and who takes you places. And so Pam read this story, and then she read it again, and then she tagged her husband in the comments. And when she got home from work that night, Pam asked Gary if he'd seen the post. And Gary said, yes, we should adopt them. (gasps) Yeah. And Pam said her heart stopped. She had been thinking about these sweet faces all day and she was thinking the same thing. So she said, we should. And Pam and Gary just thought, if not us, then who? And so Pam called the number at the bottom of the news story and she'd actually been told that there were like thousands of calls about the siblings since the story went viral. But of course, most people weren't actually prepared to take seven children. Mm -hmm. But she says she felt sure that these were their children. Pam wrote, who would keep them all together? Who would have space for them? Who would have the time, the love, and the patience for their trauma? The answer is clear. We would. Why else would we have a six-bedroom house that was about to have its last child's bedroom vacated? Why else would our nests that raised our first five babies be empty just in time? It was only to make room for our new babies. They were ours from the minute we saw their faces on the news story. Oh, my God. So Pam and Gary were persistent. And because they had this long record of fostering children, Pam and Gary were given the chance to meet the kids. So the children had been in were in foster care for about a year. They were about an hour and a half away from Pam and Gary's house. And apparently, I don't know what the foster foster family was like, but Pam says that it wasn't the best experience for the kids. Their first meeting with the children was lasted about two hours long. It was at a park near the foster home, and there were two social workers and therapists there. And Pam said that they walked away from the park blown away by how their hearts were exploding with love for the kids. And during those first visits, they also learned more about the kids' very sad history because, of course, the news story made it seem like, oh, this beautiful family, and then the the parents died in an accident, which was enough trauma for anybody. But the truth, of course, was much more grim. The family had actually been in and out of homeless encampments. The youngest boys all had various delays from effects of fetal alcohol syndrome. The kids suffered from malnourishment at separate times. There had been domestic violence and abuse in the house, and the parents had been spiraling into drug and alcohol addictions. And the older two had memories of their parents being healthy and then becoming addicted. And apparently when the car accident happened, the family had finally bought a car for the first time ever, and they were moving from Las Vegas to San Diego for a fresh start. Um, From all accounts, their mother loved them, but she was deeply addicted. So Pam and Gary knew that this was not going to be just a matter of adopting these seven happy children and instantly making a happy home. They knew that this was seven individuals dealing with a whole lot of trauma, and they probably would for the rest of their lives. But they were still willing. Pam knew about addiction. Her own brother had died from an overdose. And though and through their fostering, they had learned to deal with children with trauma. Mm-hmm. So every Saturday for 
several months, they would drive an hour and a half each way to visit these kids at the same park. They wanted to the place to be consistent because they knew that foster children crave any kind of consistency. And after weeks of these visits, Gary suggested taking the kids to a restaurant after a park visit. And when they told the kids, they were so excited. They were like, we get to go inside and eat inside? Do we get to sit at a table? Because the younger kids had never been inside a restaurant before. So Pam says they sat in the park and they talked about table manners and using inside voices and how they would order. And she said the kids were just amazing at when they went to the restaurant. They said it, she said it was heartbreaking and heartwarming all at the same time. So the park visits turned into weekend visits. And then on June 7th, 2019, the seven siblings, Xander, who was two, Leo was three, Abriella, who was four, Anthony and Alicia, who were both six, Ruby was 11, and Adelina, who was 13, moved into their new home with Pam and Gary. This was just six months after Pam saw their story on Facebook. And Pam writes so much about her journey and the kids' journey on our Instagram wow. page. I really encourage you to go read it if you want to learn more about the kids' transition to their new home. But just like suffice to say, it's not it, it was not easy for anyone. Pam oh, says Of course, it's not easy for any child, yes. let alone seven. Yes. I mean, it just it's like everything is so compounding, you know? It's yeah. like these kids have suffered so much trauma in their short lives. And now they're in a new house after watching their parents die. You know, I mean, it just is like such a a tragic story. And also, so it's not like these kids are just like, oh, you gave us a new home. Great. We're all better. You know, Pam says that it was easy to connect with the little ones. They were desperately craving permanency, but the older two were a little trickier. She says, I think they didn't quite trust that we were real. Like maybe we were going to go away. I think it's so hard to trust when so much has been taken from your life. Ruby didn't know how to be a kid. She had had to be a mother from a very young age. And so Pam was like, this was my goal, was to just let them be kids. She said that the first two or three months of fostering kids is like a honeymoon period because they're on their best behavior. They're a new space. But then the hard part really starts because once the kids feel safe, their emotional baggage starts to come out and it can be really hard even for toddlers. All the kids had a hard time sleeping. So the first several months, Pam and Gary would sleep on the floor in their rooms to make sure they didn't wake up in a panic. So that one night after the kids moved in, the seven-year-old came into the room in the middle of the night and Pam was like, did you have a bad dream? And she said, no, I just wanted to make sure you were still there. So Pam and Gary joked that at the beginning of all of this, the first like five months, they having they call the kids Willis 2.0 because that's their last name. So they're, they said mm-hmm. Pam and Gary said that they were like ships passing in the night. They didn't sleep in the same bedroom. Pam wrote on their Instagram, we have a freaking awesome committed parental partnership where we both work our butts off day in and day, now, day out for our common goal of caring for these fragile souls but a relationship. (laughs) She said, we have a 31-year foundation on the marriage. We're not bulletproof, but we have got some reserves. So five months after the kids moved in, they finally had their first date together. They got massages. They went to the movies. They went out to eat. And all of it, like they had to reassure the kids a million times that someone they knew would be there for them and that their new parents would be back after their date. And for Pam and Gary, it was the reset they needed to connect and continue to parent these seven amazing kids. And in early 2020, the family got the news they'd been waiting for. They had an adoption date. Unfortunately, that date was March 30th, 2020. So, of course, Uh. the 
Courthouses were all shut down due to COVID. I mean, the, the family was devastated. But finally, as the court started adjusting to the pandemic, the family was able to schedule a remote hearing. And on August 7th, 2020, the kids were officially adopted. All five of the Willis's biological kids, Willis 1.0, came into town for the adoption ceremony, even though one of the daughters had just had a baby four weeks earlier, and their youngest was leaving for his mission trip four days later. So Pam and Gary brought this big screen out to a park, and everyone who had supported them and their kids along the way was there to celebrate and watch the ceremony and be there for this new family. And all of the now 12 siblings went to the courthouse to take picture and pa- pictures. And Pam said there was just so much love. Mm-hmm. And so the family has spent the last year kind of doing what we've all been doing, like adjusting to life in a pandemic. The kids are just now getting back to school a few days a week. Pam and Gary have been able to take a few trips by themselves. And now that they have this awesome nanny that the kids love and trust – And the whole family was recently able to take a trip to Hawaii where Pam and Gary had lived before and they have good friends. And Pam says about the kids, from the day we met them, they were ours. They've given us a second chance at parenting and we've given them a second mom and dad. They are our second chance seven. So that's their story. But while I was diving into this amazing family, the Willises, I came across the story of this 29-year-old man named Robert Carter, who was in foster care himself as a child. And Mm -hmm. he had been, when he was, he he had eight siblings and he had been separated when they all got into foster care. And he said it caused him immense emotional trauma. He said, I was the parent figure. I was the one trying to feed my siblings and going out trying to find food to eat. When we got into foster care, I didn't know where they were and if they were taken care of. And that's what set off my depression. So when he was 20, he got custody of some of his younger siblings, and then he decided to become a foster father himself. When he was just 27 years old, he and his partner were fostering three young boys, and the boys started opening up to him and told him that they had two sisters out there. And Robert, from his experience, knew that he had to find a way to get the siblings together. So he found the sisters, he took the boys to visit, and when he saw all five of these kids together, he was like, I have to adopt them. I have to keep these kids together. So on his own, he and his partner had split up at this time. This 27-year-old man decided to adopt all five children. Oh, my God. I know. And he said, I just can't even put into word what it means. Just the fact that they're together, the fact that they have something that will help them remembering their – someone that will help them remembering their past. It's beautiful to watch them grow up and make memories together. So he officially adopted them on October 30th, 2020. And while he has undoubtedly changed these kids' lives, he also talks about the impact they have on him. He said, ever since I've gotten the kids, I don't suffer from depression. They help me change in so many ways. He said, out of nowhere the other day, Mariana, who's the oldest girl, came into my room and thanked me and gave me a hug and then ran away because she's so shy. It's Aww. moments like these where I'm grateful that I'm on my feet enough to keep these kids out of trouble and keep them safe. Anything I do is motivated by them to make sure they'll hit the ground running when they're old enough. They give me purpose. And just knowing I have a family of my own now for the rest of my life and I get to see them grow up and prosper and see how far they go, it's immeasurable. So Robert is, he owns a wig shop in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I 
used to live. And, and so he's not wealthy. He doesn't have like unlimited resources. So there, a friend of his started a GoFundMe to help him buy a new house for all of these kids. And so I actually, I just gave money and I will put a link in the show notes if you want to help fund yeah. his GoFundMe for all of these beautiful kids in his house. Yes, I do. So those are my two love stories. They're, I just, it made me feel so happy to know that there are families out there who are taking in kids that need them and kids that are giving, able to grow up in a stable environment. And I think it's just so beautiful. I love that. These are really good stories. Yeah. Okay. Man. Love it. Love it. Um, So should we do something dumb and something we love? Yes. Okay. Well, um, you know, I really don't have anything super dumb for this week, which makes a really good week. That, I mean, <gasps> for everything you've had going on in your life recently, I, I would say, good. Just tell me something bad. you love. Uh, pollen? Uh, <laughs> pollen sucks. Pollen I'll get sucks. over it. Um, I guess for something I love is just not having a shitty week. I love not having a shitty week. I also, (laughs) I'm looking forward to, you know, we're going to be doing, it'll be Easter weekend this weekend Mm -hmm. and we're going to be doing socially distant outdoor type Easter get togethers with both of our families. And I'm just excited to, um, just happy to see our family yeah again and celebrate another holiday and i'm just yeah things are good yeah are good this week good good yeah i yeah. think i think i'm just going to say my good thing i was going to say kind of the same thing is that both sets of our parents are are fully vaccinated so my dad and stepmom are actually going to stop by um stop through on easter they were in ohio and so they're on their way home and then we're going to see ben's parents next week we're doing a little trip with them. So it's just, nice. it's so nice to like feel comfortable seeing them and feel like we're doing it safely and that they're going to be safe. And it just, it's a good, good week. I hope you guys have been having a good week. I hope things are positive. Hope you had a nice Easter if that's something you do. And uh, hit us up, you know, you can hit us up. I, we still haven't gotten all your vacation plans. Yeah. So where's our vacation uh, plans? Still waiting on that. So that's something done. That's Not something done. Not a single done. one of you has sent, <laughs> sent us your vacation. Not a single one of you assholes has sent in your vacation plans. So yeah, hit us up on, you can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Find us on all the socials, Dumb Love Podcast. And, uh, and we love you guys and we hope you're having a great week. Yes. Uh, we dumb love you so much and get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum, da, dum, 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 dum,